Good morning, Hope Ames. What do you think? Huh? Happy Reformation Sunday. I know you've all been counting down. You had your Reformation calendars going throughout the entire month of October. And this is so exciting. 50% of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and that's OK. About half a millennium ago, there was a man named Martin Luther. He was a Catholic priest. And he saw that the church that he loved had fallen into corruption. They were using scripture in a way to hurt people and to abuse them. And so he wrote 95 theses to correct the ways in which they had gone wrong. And he nailed them to this big door in Germany. And he got in a lot of trouble for it. But because of it, he reformed the church and the church became better because of it. And I'm wearing a red alb right now um, because red albs are what ordained pastors wear on Reformation Sunday. But I don't feel super comfortable, so I'm just going to take it off. But I, I wanted to share that with you. And, and what Martin Luther did once upon a time, because of what he was seeing in the church, actually has a lot to do with what we are seeing today. Now, I know that a lot of us, we think that maybe Reformation Sunday doesn't have a lot of relevance for us. It actually is a very big holiday, and people practice it every single year, just in the same way that Martin Luther went to the door of the castle, and he knocked and knocked and knocked with his 95 theses. Uh, tonight, lots of children will go out, and they'll wear their costumes, and they'll knock and knock and knock on doors, and they'll get candy. It's for that, right? That's the reason for it? No? Okay. I don't know if beggars night is tonight or tomorrow, and I don't know when we do it. I always forget. But this actually does relate well into what we're talking about. I'm going to get to that a little bit more later. But this is now the fifth week in our Ten Commandments in nine weeks. And this is the fifth commandment. Can you read this with me? Ready? You must not murder. Amen. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. It should be easy, right? I think that's what we think. But maybe uh, if we take a look at what the Bible really says, we'll find that we're more um, guilty of, this, of, the, of breaking this commandment than, than we actually think that we are. Um, killing, death, unjust death, has been at the center of dysfunction ever since the outbreak of sin. You uh, could read about this in the early chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1, chapter 3, you read about how God creates the world. It's supposed to be this beautiful place. Everything's living in perfect order and function. And then sin enters the world. Sin enters the world. People leave this beautiful, precious, perfect garden, and they're now living outside of it. The first sin that is recorded outside of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 4 has to do with murder. It's unjust death. It's two twin brothers. There's Cain and Abel. Maybe you've heard of them before. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. It was completely unjust. It was out of character. It was completely wrong. Cain was so frustrated because Abel had put a sacrifice before the Lord that the Lord was pleased with. And Cain's sacrifice, God wasn't pleased with that. So he was angry and he was mad. This is at the center of dysfunction throughout all of God's people's history in the Old Testament. Especially before God had freed his people from Egypt. As we've been going through this series, I've been reminding you that the Ten Commandments were given to God's people after they had been freed from Egypt. God's people, the Israelites, uh, at this time the, the, the Hebrews, they'd been living under slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And after God sets them free, he says, okay, this is how free people live. Because the way that they had been living was a way of oppression, it was a way of injustice, and it was also a life in which death, and especially unjust death, and murder existed all over the place. 
When they would be living in Egypt and they'd be living under slavery, God's people would face oppression and oftentimes the oppression they would face would be the loss of their loved ones at the hands of Egyptians. They were living in a time when their lives weren't valued, when every single life was not valued equally, especially. Some people could get away with it, others couldn't. Some people could pay it off, other people would have to pay it with their life. It was unjust. Lives were not cared for. But then God says, with this commandment, free people. Here's the expectation. Now that you are free, now that you don't live in slavery, now that I've saved you from Egypt, free people exist to protect and cultivate life. You have been set free from slavery. You've been set free from the dysfunction of your sin. And at the center of this dysfunction of sin, God's people saw time and again people getting killed unjustly. And now with this command, God is saying, that's not the way that I created this world to be. Now, the very first time that this commandment was actually introduced was before the Ten Commandments. Just after Noah and his family got off of their big boat, God had flooded the world, but God spared Noah's family. They get off the boat and God actually says this. He says this to them in Genesis chapter 4. I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. Translation, do not murder. It is a really big deal. You need to see that life is sacred. You need to protect it. You need to care for it. This is the first time that God explicitly says, don't murder. Now, I find, that, I find the timing of this to be very, very interesting. If you ever lived through like a really big storm, if you've ever experienced, if you've ever been on the highway when there's like a tornado warning happening, or maybe you see a funnel cloud starting to shape, you feel very, very small. And maybe at the site of destruction, you feel really, really tiny, and you feel very, very insignificant. And after such a flood, after such a storm that Noah and his family had just endured, I wonder if when they got off the boat, they felt so insignificant that their lives were just so flimsy, and they could be taken away at any moment whatsoever. And yet here's God, the creator of the universe, overseeing all of creation. And after this massive, huge flood that wiped out mountains and land and all over things, God looks at people and he says, you matter. You are important. You are significant. Treat one another like it. God is telling us that life is absolutely precious. Life is totally precious to God. And one of the ways that I thought about it when I was thinking about it this week is it's something that is priceless. And I think about something that is priceless in my life. I see it every single day. I see it on my hand. This is my wedding band. I don't know for sure like what the exact like monetary value of this is, but if you were to come up to me and even if you offered me $10,000 for this gold wedding band that is not worth $10,000, I'd say absolutely no way because it's priceless to me because it means something. There's some things that you cannot put a price on. It is so precious. And not only is life precious according to God and God's word, but also since we are a part of life, we're accountable for it. According to God, life is precious and we are accountable for life. If somebody just randomly gives you a gift of money and they give you no barriers, no rules for how you're supposed to spend it, there's no accountability in there, is there? You can do whatever you want with it. It's why if you just continue to give a kid money and money and money, they'll never learn the value of a dollar, as they'll always say. But God's telling you, I don't want you to be a kid like that. Instead, I am trusting you. 
When you just give someone money as a gift, there's no accountability in it. But if you were to give your money to a broker, that's someone you're trusting. And that broker is going to be held accountable for the way that they handle your money. In the same way, when God gives us life, he is not saying, I'm giving you life and just do whatever you want with it. He's saying, I'm giving you life and I want you to protect it. I want you to care for it. It's not actually yours. You're held accountable for this, God's word tells us. And it's important that we take it so seriously. If we go back to that story about Cain and Abel, we just read this right away. Cain says to God after God says, where is your brother? And Cain knows that he has killed his brother. And Cain says, what, am I my brother's guardian? And it doesn't say it in the text, but I have in parentheses down there, yes, yes, absolutely you are. It is so tempting for us to see people, whether they're on the other side of the world or sitting right next to you right now, and think, well, there are some things in their life where it just doesn't matter if I'm helping them with it. But God says we are supposed to join one another. Listen, to break the commandment that says do not murder does not necessarily mean that you're the one who is physically killing someone. It also means to passively let those things happen. And not just the unjust death of someone, but the unjust work inside of someone. To see those things happen and to just let them happen. I've heard it said before that in order to avoid breaking the commandments, you could just sit in your bed all day long. I mean, think about it like this. Don't make any idols. Well, I can't. I'm too lazy to get up and do anything about that. Don't have an affair. I'm in bed alone, right? I mean, like, you can't do that. Don't murder. Well, I'm not seeing anyone today. I'm staying here. I mean, it's possible to not break the commandments, but not follow them either. And God's saying, I want you to follow these. I want you to see the significance of these. Specifically with this command, the significance that is in it is when we are protecting and caring for life, we're seeing the image of God in people. I've referenced it so many times in sermons, and I hope that you've seen this. It's also in that passage in Genesis chapter 4. God, when he made people, he said, let's make them in our image. God made people in his image. Every human being is made in the image of God. It's so important that we remember this when we remember this command. That we don't forget it, that we're not flippant about it. That we're not flippant about the way that we handle one another's lives, and especially their livelihood. We ought to care for them. Free people exist to protect life. Not to just passively let it go. Jesus is very, very, very serious about this. See how closely Jesus associates with people because he sees his image in them. This is in Matthew chapter 25, and Jesus is talking about final judgment over all of creation. Jesus is talking about sheep and goats, and he says this is how God's going to separate the sheep from the goats. There will be those who the master said, who, who God says on judgment day, thank you so much. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And they would say back to him, well, when did we do these things for you? And Jesus says, the master would respond, when you did one of these things to the least of my brothers and sisters, when you did, one of the, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Do you see how closely Jesus identifies with humans? It's not just because he cares and it draws them to him, and that's part of it. But the reason why he cares, the reason why it draws him to them is because he actually sees himself in them. Think about the closest relationships in your life. Think about the most protective relationships in your life. 
If you have kids, it's because you see yourself in them. Whether they have your physical DNA or not, you are teaching them. They are growing in you. And Jesus says the reason why we protect life is because when you see them, you see me. And so to hurt someone, to hurt a person is to actually assault the image of God. It would be like to take an image of God. If there was a picture, a photograph of God and just rip it apart. We have the opportunity to encourage others to see the image of God in themselves. Because we're living in a world where I think a lot of people don't see the image of God in themselves. Right? I mean, how many people, when they look in a mirror, they're like, <laughs> image of God, beautiful, I love it. What if you had someone in your life who could encourage you to see that, to know that? To be an image of God is a lot like to be a mirror. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The most common and frequently used uh, object lesson in any sermon for any preacher is a mirror. Because there's so much that can go with it. And as mirrors, we are intended to reflect the image of God. I'm going to do my best to not blind people. Uh, okay, sorry. We're intended to reflect the image of God. Now, a lot of times, it's true when we see people around us, we don't see the perfectly clean image of God. This is not a clean mirror. But what are we going to do with them? Are we going to encourage them to help them see what's beneath the surface? Or do some of us maybe spend more of our time saying, you know what? Yeah, you're not a very clean and perfect image of God, so how about we just make it a little dirtier? You get the point. The dirt fell off, but you get the point. It's dirtier. It's, there's more germs on it now. We have the opportunity. We're called to something better. I'm not saying that we're the ones who do the purification, but we are the ones who get to remind people, no, you are made for something better. You are made for something more. Your life is precious. Your life is priceless. Your life is valuable. Even when you feel small, even when you feel insignificant, you can hear your creator say, you matter to me. We have the opportunity to share that with people. We have the opportunity to let them know the image of God lives within them. When you look at the person next to you, do you see the image of God? Do you know that about them? I mean, I think that this is absolutely powerful and transformative for us to understand. When we look at the greatest beauties on this world, we're like, wow, that's the thing that will last forever. You look at a mountain, you're like, that's the thing that lasts forever. Maybe you see the entire world because of the sun. You're like, oh, wow, well, that's the thing that lasts. You see something, you're like, that's the thing. Don't you know that someday when the sun burns out, or those mountains, they've been, you know, They've eroded from the wind just into grains of sand on the beach. Don't you know that the person sitting next to you will still be alive? Isaiah chapter 54, 54 verse 10 says, Even though the mountains may crumble or the hills disappear, my faithful love for you even then will remain. You are sitting next to people who are not going to disappear. Because they are created in the image of God. And we have the opportunity to remind them of that. We have the opportunity to remind them of their eternal significance. And I get it. We could buy, buy plane tickets. We could go on road trips to see all the beauties and wonders of the world. But there is nothing more precious. There is nothing more significant. There is nothing more beautiful. There is no creation that is called better than the person sitting next to you. And even the person sitting in your seat. You. The person sitting next to you. Made in the image of of God. When I think about it, I think about this quote from C.S. Lewis, and I just think it's one of the greatest quotes I've ever read in my life. He wrote, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. 
nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors and everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Are you taking the people around you seriously? Are you taking their life and their livelihood seriously? Because so often we excuse our behavior with this. Well, at least I'm not a murderer. Do you ever hear people say something like that? Oftentimes, because I'm a pastor, people will sit in my office and they'll start to confess to me their sin. And I remind them, don't you remember Martin Luther? I'm not a priest, you know. And sometimes, I'm not saying that this has been the exact phrasing or wording that's happened, but sometimes, you know, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not a murderer. And we take things like way out of context. Like, yeah, I cut that guy off, but at least I'm not a murderer. We say something along the lines of, yeah, okay, I don't know, I didn't clean my room, but mom and dad, at least I didn't kill somebody today. We just, we like excuse it if we didn't like physically ruin someone. But that's not exactly what this is getting at. And Jesus, in the book of Matthew, opens that up for us and shows us just how big and how nuanced and truly how complicated this commandment is. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, and you heard this in the reading for today. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. Keep in mind, Jesus did not say, you read in the scriptures you must not murder. Jesus is saying you were told you must not murder. And if you physically murder someone, then you will be held accountable for it. See, back in those days, people were treating the law as something that was just absolutely literal in the physical sense, and that was it. Sometimes that was an excuse, and sometimes that was a way to put pressure on people in ways that there weren't supposed to be pressure on people. And Jesus is saying, I want you to see what the scriptures really say. This was all about what Martin Luther did half a millennium ago. Tomorrow will be 505 years since he nailed the 95 theses on that door. And his entire purpose was to get the church back to where they once had been. Like, please hear this. Martin Luther was not trying to start a new church. He was trying to reform the church that they loved. And if you ever get high and mighty, well, thank goodness I'm a part of a Protestant church. Martin Luther saved us. The Catholic church has undergone incredible reformation since then. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and you need to know that. It's important that we know that. But Martin Luther's objective was getting exactly to what Jesus was getting at in this moment too. You have heard it said and you have heard it taught, but people have been taking it out of context and they're not understanding the full depth of it. But Jesus is inviting us to read and truly understand what the scriptures were teaching us. You've heard it said you must not murder, but I say if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Sometimes people will separate like Old Testament God from New Testament God. We'll say, well, Old Testament God, he's this God of wrath. And in the Old Testament, there's all this murder and there's all this death and there's all this corruption. But then the New Testament, it's all like this grace and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. It's the same God. And in some ways, Jesus, yes, he absolutely brings in the grace and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it is for our benefit. But don't you also understand that sometimes Jesus really ups the ante, right? I mean, you've heard it said, don't kill people with your hands, but I'm telling you, if you're just angry with someone, 
You've done it. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. Do not call someone that. And if you curse someone, you are in, da in, the, in danger of the fires of hell. I want to go really quickly to what that means to be angry. Like according to Jesus, what does it mean to be angry? The word for this is orgizo. Go ahead and say orgizo. Orgizo is passive or nurtured anger. It's the kind of anger that we take care of. It's the kind of anger that we water. If I were to go back to my dirt, you could also see this as soil, right? You've got soil, and in this soil, there's plenty of fertile things that could grow. Now, if I just leave it off to the side, nothing will happen to it. But if I pour water into it, which I'm not going to, that's going to create a mess, it would grow into something. If you were to take a look just at an acorn, all you see is an acorn. If you just throw it off to the side on, unfer on unfertile land, you'll, you'll see that it won't do anything. But it is a seed. And if it's buried somewhere, and if it's nurtured, and if it's watered, and if it's cared for, it could create the largest forest you'd ever see. This is what kind of anger Jesus is talking about. It's passive and it's nurtured anger. It's that kind of anger that feels good when you let it grow and when you let it come out. It's that kind of anger when it makes you feel righteous. It's that kind of anger when you enjoy to put it out on people around you. And Jesus is saying this is the same thing as murder. Jesus also said, or Jesus is also pointing back to exactly what we read earlier with Cain and Abel. When God found out that Cain was going to kill Abel, here's what he said to him. He said, why are you so angry? Cain's entire problem with Abel started in anger. And it was this nurtured anger. It was passive. It just kind of felt good to get out. And eventually, it was watered and it turned into a forest. It is important for us to understand that the seeds for the worst sins in the world do not exist on the other side of the planet. It's important that when we see criminals who've committed some of the worst crimes we could ever possibly imagine, we shouldn't see them as animals that live on the other side of the world. We need to understand that the same things that are planted in them are planted inside of us too. And if we're not careful, if we don't follow the God of love, if we don't remember that we are created in the image of God, and we are called to protect and care for all those who are created in the image of God, we're nurturing this passive anger that feels good, to let it out. And it's exactly what started with Cain. I know it sounds big, it sounds crazy, but it also sounds crazy to think that an acorn would create a forest. And yet it could. And yet it has. Jesus didn't just say if you are angry with somebody, but he also said this in Matthew chapter 5, if you call someone an idiot, quite literally the word that he used, and this was in Aramaic, and even in the Greek, they paused for a moment in the Greek, and they recorded this word in Aramaic, and it's raka. Go ahead and say raka. Raka means empty or foolish, which means this expression of contempt. If you call someone a fool, it's to look down on them. It's to call them out in their place of work in their place of life, and to say, you're pathetic. You don't belong. You don't know what you're doing. I don't know. I can't think of any examples where we just often do this in a certain place here in Ames, right? <laughs> like, I mean, my good, to boo 18 to 22-year-olds? And to boo coaches? Like, we sit in stadiums. I was in Tampa on Thursday night because I grew up, I love Tom Brady. It's 
it's probably idolatry and I need to work on it. But I went to Tampa. I took this migration. My, it's awful. Anyway, I went to Tampa on my mom's free flight benefits. And I ended up in Tampa and I'm sitting there and I'm watching Tom Brady play. And people are getting so angry at the coaches. And you just hear all these conversations around, you know, the offensive coordinator really needs to get it figured out. They need to disguise the methods and the, and the, and the, and the execution. I'm like, what do you know about football? Well, I play Madden. I was a quarterback for my fourth grade flag football team. (laughs) Oh, the condescension. Oh, how easy it is to be sitting in the stands and call people out for what they're really, really good at and so much better than you at. Booing 18 to 22 year olds. What if you're sitting at work and you make one mistake on your Excel sheet and your coworker comes up to you, boo! You stink! What if you're a teacher and you get a little bit mad at one of the students? Well, actually, honestly, parents, you should stop booing teachers. My, that's personal for me. My wife is a teacher. Anyway. <laughs> but what if that was like you for what if it was like that for you at work? Is that fair? To have that kind of contempt? And we say, oh, but these coaches, they're making so much money. Oh, but these players, now there's NIL deals. Oh, they signed up for this. They're human beings made in the image of God. And I'm not trying to be flippant about this. I get it's just a sport, but it represents something much bigger about us. It's every single time when we're driving and somebody cuts us off and we tell them, oh, that's such a horrible person. Boo! Made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. We get like happy. We we nurture it. We feel good when it comes out. It almost starts to feel good when those people that we want to do well, but now we're condescending on them, start to fail a little bit more. We're almost like happy about, see, I told you. You just hire me as the offensive coordinator. No, they shouldn't. (laughs) Go back to your Excel sheet. (laughs) The Bible warns us about this. This is in uh, 1 Corinthians. Love's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Translation, it's not condescending. Love doesn't keep score, it says. Love is patient and love is kind. I think we're kind of understanding why Jesus finishes his teaching on do not murder with this. He talks about if you're in church, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, you should leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Okay, so who needs to leave church right now? I think every single one of us may need to stand up and walk out, including me. Because to have these deep burden passive, nurtured, angry angry feelings toward people. These condescending feelings toward people. It's to assault the character of God. If I'm sitting here, I'm praising you, God. I, I love you so much. But back within my mind, there's this seed that's being watered and nurtured. I'm seeing someone who's made in the image of God is broken. It's unhuman. You know what it is to take life away from someone? It's to pretend like they're not a person. It's to pretend like they're not a human. We do this all the time, don't we? We do it with our enemies. Call them all sorts of names rather than people. People we don't like. If that's what we're saying about the image of God, how can we stand here and worship? 
God, I love you so much. You're so perfect. You're so wonderful. I hate you. You're so wonderful. You're so perfect. I don't like you either. You're so wonderful. You're so perfect. You should be fired. You're so wonderful. You're so perfect. What? We're assaulting the image of God, but we're pretending to praise the image of God? We're taking life. We're not protecting it. Another biblical warning about this is Proverbs 24. Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. To be a child of God, to be made in the image of God, to see everyone else as made in the image of God, it means that even when the most corrupt people die, we don't celebrate. We grieve death and we grieve failure no matter what. It doesn't mean that we understand that also in that same book in Proverbs, it says there is a time for peace and there is a time for war. But it means that no matter who it is who has died in war, we never celebrate it. We grieve it because we know that death is a symptom of a broken world. The way that it never was supposed to be. It's not the way that it was supposed to be. When we receive this, it's really wonderful, right? Like we receive it and it feels good. We say things like this, oh, grace, it's so much better than I think, right? It's amazing. I love grace. It's so much better than I think because it's, it's for me. But then we fall into what psychologists call a fundamental attribution error. It is when I mess up, it's circumstantial. So like when somebody honks their horn at me after I veer into their lane, and, oh, darn it, you were in my blind spot. When they mess up, it's their character. They veer into our lane, you're a failure, you're a loser. How did you pass driver's ed? You clearly don't care about your family. You're just a punk. Blame it on them. Fundamental attribution error. It's making enemies. It's being so frustrated. Like We have to recognize this is completely contradictory and antithetical to the Christian way of life. To people who follow Jesus, and I get it, that's a silly example about people driving, but I'm serious. When it comes to just little acorns and little seeds, when we nurture them and when we grow them, they can create the greatest forests in the world. Some of them aren't good. Are you nurturing your anger? Are you letting it grow? Does it feel good when it comes out of you? See, grace is better than we think, and it's really nice when it touches us. But do you know who Jesus gave grace to? Jesus gave grace to the most unforgivable people in the world. I referenced this last week and I need to reference it again. This is from Luke chapter 23. And when Jesus is on the cross, he is saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Jesus forgave murderers. He forgave murderers. That's good for you. That's good for me, right? Because according to Jesus, I'm a murderer. Grace is better than I think. He's reached into my heart. He's cleaning my mirror. He's reminding me that I'm still a child of God. I'm still made in the image of God. He's protecting my life. He is creating this, this possible circumstance for me to continue to live, even though I'm a broken person. Grace is better than I think. But then he forgives the people that I call an enemy. And we realize grace is better than I think. And grace is bigger than I want. It's for them too. The people we celebrate when they fail, when they die. This is why grace is so scandalous. You cannot think of a person who grace is not for. 
And that will make us uncomfortable if we really think about specific people. And if we really think about specific circumstances. See, Jesus didn't need enemies. We're living in a world right now where we're following so many people who are just calling out their enemies. They're using their enemies as a way to just bring more followers to them. We see this in the political sphere. We see it in the workplace. We see it in our social lives. But I want to tell you this. If the person who you are following needs an enemy, they are a poor leader. Leaders who need enemies to lead are poor leaders. And if you're following someone who needs an enemy in order to get you to follow them, you need to find someone else to follow. There is a better way to life. There's a better way to nurture life. There's a better way to protect life. It's not by finding enemies and say, well, rid some of them so we can save the rest. Jesus says, I want to save all of them. Leaders who need enemies to lead are poor leaders, but look at the way of Jesus. I love this in Romans chapter 5. Since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Jesus refused to let his enemies remain enemies. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., another reformer, he's got that famous quote. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate can't drive out hate. Only love can do that. Long time before that, Abraham Lincoln said, the most fundamental way to change your enemy is to make them your friend. And many, many, many years before that, Jesus Christ said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See the image of God in them because he sees his image in you. Jesus refuses for us to be his enemy. He does not need an enemy to live. He does not need an enemy to lead. He does not need an enemy for purpose for his movement. The purpose of his movement is to bring life to all of us. To protect our lives. Lives that he sees as precious and priceless. Lives that could not be bought with any price or any human life. But only the life of the Son of God. He refused to have enemies. He transformed them. He wiped our mirrors clean from the dirt that told us you're an enemy. He said, no. You're my beloved. When I see you, I see me. I'm drawn to you. It's the closest connection that we have. It's our connection to life. And when we look around this room and when you look at the person next to you, when you look at the person on the field, when you see the person in the workplace, when you see the person at school, and maybe it's someone that you're having a really hard time seeing the image of God in them. Don't you forget how Jesus sees them. Because you haven't forgotten how Jesus sees you. He refused to have enemies. Instead, he gave life. With his own. <laughs> but he came back to life so that we'd have life forever. 
The mountains may crumble. The hills may disappear. Even then, God's faithful love will remain for us. When the sun fades away and the greatest beauties of this world have been eroded by the wind into grains of sand on a beach, you will see that there are no mere mortals, but every person made in the image of God will still be together and will still be with God who protects our lives. Let's join him in that effort. Amen. Stand on up and sing one more song before we head out. Amen. <laughs>